Good morning. Has it been three months already? <laughs> it's been quite an adventure for me, actually, in the last few months. For those of you that don't know, uh, I took a, what would you call it, a sojourn, a leave of absence, a sabbatical, a vacation, a <laughs> and none of those, really. I went up and stayed with a Christian monastery, a Benedictine group up in... Uh, the Hudson Valley, uh, up toward uh, Poughkeepsie. And uh, they're, they're uh, Episcopalian, which means that they're wide open. They are very interested in learning new things and sharing new things and are very well studied and very much in love with God. And uh, I enjoyed the time with them a great deal. They have a very rigorous schedule every day that involves about a five-hour period of time every day in the in the church, either chanting or uh, doing what they call contemplative prayer, which is akin to meditation, and uh, lots of scripture reading. Uh, but, but overall, I think I was touched by one, one thing that was quite different. Um, even though our ideas very much line up and our values and our ideals uh, of God are, are the same, I, I could really, and they could also agree that there was no difference in, in the God that, uh, and how we approach God even. That, that grace and love are at the center and heart of all of it. But the one thing that I enjoyed or that I appreciated was a slightly different view on life that they practice there. Whereas they like to talk in terms of being co-creators with God, that God has imbued us with a creative spirit. And so, you know, a lot of times I think of renunciation as kind of pushing this world away and kind of washing my hands and getting, getting unstuck, uncleared from it. And I think they've got more of what Vivekananda was moving toward, this idea of establishing uh, the ideal in this world, that, that renunciation means that you roll up your sleeves and uh, put your hands into the effort of building an ideal, not your own, but that of the Lord, that of the divine an ideal based on love, and that the community is the practice. You know, that their, their practice, of course, they all had their own, their own practices as well, but they emphasize the idea that community is practice, that you building this community, building your relationships, keeping your relationships healthy, keeping your relationships positive, letting them go deeper, being there in service for one another, seeing and looking around for others to help and others to be there for, that this is your practice. This is what it is to be a co-creator with the divine, to be a manifester of your infinite nature, of your infinite bliss and your infinite love. And so I really enjoyed that up there. The way that it manifested was that uh, every day the community meets together in chapter room, they call it, which is a little chapel, a little round chapel. And and on the ceiling, I hope I can remember it, I read it every day for three months, it said, uh, uh, listen carefully, incline the ears of your heart to the words of the teacher. And uh, they sit in a circle, and they go one by one, and you share, uh, first time around, what, what your plans are for the day, how you're going to spend the day, uh, and if you need anybody's help, or if you would like to meet with anybody. And then you go around and there's an opportunity for the chapter of faults. If there's any way that you feel like you have uh, wounded the community in any way. So you've thought bad things or said bad things or forgot to do your chores or uh, whatever. It's your opportunity just to say it. There's no, there's no 
a penalty for it. There's no, like, it's not, it's not a negative thing necessarily. It's just an opportunity for you to come out and clear, clear yourself with your community. So they do that every single day. And then once a week, they have a chapter meeting with a therapist, uh, an outside uh, psychiatrist who comes in and kind of, they talk about things that are going on in the community, arguments that have happened, passive aggressive behaviors that some of the brothers are employing to get their way or whatever. But they bring everything out on the table and keep everything in the light, you know, so that they're constantly working. And they see that as a very important part of their practice. And uh, it was a delight to see that, to see that employed and to see really a, a group of men working on deepening relationship uh, with God, with each other, and manifesting an ideal in the world. So uh, I was inspired by that and wanted to work on that and uh, hopefully share that with you this morning. Um, this is a, this lecture this morning, it's coming out of the Bible mostly because that's where my head has been in the last few months. And uh, I wanted to share some ideas. It could be a good, uh, you know, if I was down in the South in my younger days and in my 20s, uh, this could be a good fire and brimstone sermon. <laughs> But we'll leave that. We'll leave that part out and uh, talk about it. I called it leaven. Uh, leaven, you know, is yeast. And uh, there's there's something that Jesus says a few times in the New Testament. He says, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees." Uh, the Pharisees were the teachers of the in the Jewish community, very similar to priests in uh, in Hinduism, priests and 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 uh, scholars. And so uh, he says, "Beware of the leaven." that is in them. So I wanted to talk about that this morning because uh, if it's something that God is telling us to be careful of, it's something we should understand. So I wanted to dig at it to find out what he was talking about, how to be careful of it, how to avoid it, and, uh, and not let our community become infected with it. So to start all of that, I'm going to read from Hafiz, of course. They call you to sing, and this is really the bottom line of anything that God has to say to us. Stones are longing for what you know. If they had the graceful movements of your feet and your tongue, they would not stop laughing between their ecstatic dance steps and their unbroken praise. Your heart beats inside a sacred drum. Its skin is tanned and stretched. Our skin, it's alive and stretched with the wild molecules of his wondrous existence. Your mind... Your eyes are an immense silk cloth upon which all of your thoughts and movements paint. Your soul once sat in an easel on my, e, on my knee. For ages I have been sketching you with myriads of shapes of sounds and light. Now awake, dear pilgrim. Awake with your thousand swaying arms that need to caress the sky. Now awake with your love for the friend and creation. Help this old tavern sweeper Hafiz to celebrate. No more enemies from this golden view. All who have entered this holy mountain cave have dropped their shields and their swords. We all cook together around a fire of yearning that music builds. We share our tools. We share our instruments. We share our plates. We are companions on this earth. As the sun and planets are in the sky, we are all sentries at our sacred humble posts. The stones and the stars, 
They envy the movements of your legs and your tongue and call to you to sing on their behalf. The atoms in your cells and your limbs are full of wonderful talent. They dance in the hidden choir that I conduct. Don't sleep tonight, dear pilgrim, so I can lead you on my white mare to his summer house. To love you now, have the truth that will never forsake you. This love you now have of the truth will never forsake you. Your joys and your sufferings on this arduous path are lifting your worn veil like a rising stage curtain and will surely reveal your magnificent self so that you can guide this world like Hafiz in a hidden choir God and his friends will forever conduct. <laughs> I'd love to get carried away by that stuff. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to think of what it would be like if we could actually do that for a day or two. You know, to actually fall in love at that ecstatic level with God, with each other. To catch that kind of optimistic vision for the world and to throw ourselves in full abandonment. To just go and be. Just sentry, meaning ready to serve. You know, just like the, the peace pilgrim when she says... I now see as every moment as an opportunity to serve. Just to sit there waiting, you know, like it makes me think of a, of a man Friday or like a butler in a, you know, on some, one of those old English shows that could do butlers like nobody's business. Just standing there looking completely posed and completely removed from the scene, but that eye looking for anything that's needed by the master anywhere in the room. Uh, you know, Greg, uh, who was a monk in San Francisco when I first joined, he'd been there for 20 years when I joined. And uh, he was still a brahmachari, and he was, he, was, he was my big brother. I mean, he really, really uh, gave me all of the, uh, you know, the little clue-ins that helped make my monastic life survivable in the early days. And uh, one of the things that always impressed me about Greg was at sitting at the dinner table. We'd be having lunch, and there'd be, you know, sometimes up to 20 devotees sitting there eating with us. And Greg had this ability to, like, out of nowhere, just pick up something and hand it to somebody before they even needed to ask for it or it had even occurred to them. He just had a, a knack for just watching everything very closely while engaging, not looking like he was doing it at all. So if you needed the salt, he would catch you, make that first glance, and the salt would instantly, you know, come your way. You know, you'd finish that first round of doll, you know, and before you had put the spoon back down again, the doll bowl was coming your way on the table. That's the eye of a servant. That's an eye of somebody who loves the beloved and is working in this world uh, to, to, to manifest, to be a co-creator of that divinity, a co-manifester of that pure divinity in this world. And for us in our practices, you know, we always talk about that. Our practices are to just make us conscious, just to make us aware so that we can sit in that space, you know, and, and just <laughs> continue to give and give and give and give and give. That's the only thing we can do in this world. Taking doesn't work. We talk about that all the time. If you take, it turns to potting soil in time. There's nothing you can take with you. But giving, you can give endlessly. It's your nature. So many thousands of people had gathered together to hear 
what Jesus had to say, that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that is not known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. It's a great image, a great warning. <laughs> it's certainly one that politicians experience all the time, I'm sure. This notion, Jesus says, that hypocrisy is the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and the nature of leaven, you know, you just need a little tiny bit of, uh, of leaven into a, to put into a loaf of bread, and, and it spreads through the whole loaf. It makes the entire loaf rise. And so when you think of us here as the Sangha, you know, the, together as spiritual seekers, if, if we aren't sincere, if we don't have that level of earnesty, earnestness inside, that, that, that honoring of the heart with the mind and the mouth, you know, that, that just a little bit of that will infect the entire community. Just a little bit of that not being true to yourself and to your ideals and to what you are wanting to manifest in this world, just a little bit of it will pollute everything in the community. And it's important for us to develop that sense and that understanding as we work together that our own earnestness is not just about our own realization. It's about each other's purity and each other's growth and each other's development. Because if you are if you are someone who's not being sincere, who's who's not being unified in their heart, you can't you can't say anything to somebody. You know, you, you can't, you have no authority in your voice to inspire and to lift someone up. You know, if, 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 you, if you in love wanted to help somebody, but you're guilty of the same thing, you've got tape on your mouth. You, you can't promote the ideal. You can't take their eyes off of the world and put them on God. And if you do, you know, there's a feeble division inside of you. It's like, ah, the pain of knowing that, that you're not trying or you're not doing or you're not you're not running the race so you 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 can't wholeheartedly help them to do the same <laughs> this hypocrisy jesus was constantly getting in trouble because of it with these with these sadducees and pharisees now sadducees and pharisees i'm going to say that a lot that's just like priests and and uh, pundits uh, in in judaism all right, in the book of Matthew, it says, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. So these Sadducees and Pharisees have challenged Jesus. They've said, tell us on whose authority are you saying these things? By whose authority are you giving these new teachings? And he said, okay, all right, you say that you want to know who my authority is. I'm going to ask you a question first. If you answer that question... I'll tell you by whose authority I work. He says, the baptism of John, what source was it from? Was it from heaven or from men? Okay, so John the Baptist was, a, was the guy who came before Jesus to announce his coming, and he was baptizing people in the desert. And uh, a lot of the, uh, lots of people were going out and hearing that and then getting baptized, going through that ritual of purity and starting anew. <laughs> And uh, so Jesus says, tell me, was John acting on his own or was he acting with the authority of God? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from God, 
he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say from men, we will fear the people because they regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And he also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, he sussed out their heart immediately. They weren't interested in truth. They weren't interested in knowing something. You know, they, they're, they're, they were insincere in what they were asking. They were wanting to trip him up. They were wanting to, you know, cause a division and to bring him down. And he wouldn't play along. He says he, re- he exposed it to them. Your heart's divided. I ask you a simple question and you counter each side. Well, see, if we say this, we're going to get in trouble for this reason. And if we say that, we're going to get in trouble with those people for that reason. It's not a matter of knowing truth. It's a matter of which one is serving you. So it takes this hypocrisy inside of us, creates that cloudiness, that murkiness, of, you know, takes away our clarity, our ability to see straight. You know, when we, when we make room in our lives for, th- for unhealthy habits, when we make room in our, li- in our minds for unhealthy thoughts, when, when, we, when we justify our angers and our jealousies and our, and our backbiting, our angers, when we justify those things, we split the mind. And we make a message that, that should be unified have to splinter a little bit to make room for that. And when you do that several times over, you get confusion. And it's because we live in this confusion that we can't see God. God is that singularity of light that's coming in through the eyes and the ears and the nose and the mouth and the whole body all the time. But us, because of our mental our, our mental breaks, you know, our, our little inconsistencies that, that allow us to hold on to, to our delusions and to, to our loves of the world, making permanent things that are not permanent. You know, when we, when we do that, it, it breaks that inner vision. Things become unclear. Discouragement starts to happen. Doubt starts to happen. You know, you start second-guessing yourself. And when you, when, you, when, you, when you come to a place in your spiritual life when you're not trying anymore because you feel like you've tried and failed so many times or, or you've settled to the degree that you, well, I'll just do what I'm doing and hopefully that's, that's enough. I just can't really do more than that. When we, when we come to that place, we've let go of the gem. We've let go of, of, of the clarity of the divine, that love which is so inspiring and which is so uplifting that we read about and that we sing about. You know, those songs this morning, it's a treasure trove. I just got that packet. It came while I was away from the nuns in San Francisco. Those were all the songs that the nuns used to lead that I didn't manage to get to steal when I left the center there. (laughs) So they sent them to me. So those ideals that you sing in there, you know, Lord, hear my prayer. You know, how can I keep from singing? These ideals that just, they crack, they, they, they break you inside, you know, as you sing them. They really touch the heart. And that's, that's, that's what the awareness of God is. It's not what it's for, but that's what it does. You know, to walk in the divine, to, to walk in that light, it opens up that inner inspiration. You know, it, it can take a cubicle job, you know, and turn it, in, and turn it into a profound experience of, of being alive in a day. It can take, it can take a counterhelp job and turn it into a job of, of giving and caring and nurturing you know, you sometimes hear those stories of the, the, the bartender, not bartender, but the barrister at a, 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 a Starbucks who remembers everybody's name, you know, and, and actually remembers what they talk to you about. Challenge for me because I'm so not that. But, the, you know, the, they, they make a difference in their community, and it turns out at some point that, that like, they either 
I don't know, they always do something profound and then you hear about it on the news. But I love that idea that you can take a job like Starbucks, which can be nothing. It can be a, a minimum wage, you know, slosh it out kind of job. Or you could start to care. You know, you, you could start to be that sentry, that butler of the divine, on guard for, have, for being able to help. Look how many people the Lord brings to you all day long, every day. You know, how many people you have the opportunity to touch. And if you change the notion of your job, I'm not here to get paid for making coffee. I'm here to, to love all these people that come to me and see me every day to get their cup of coffee, you know, and have a few minutes to chit-chat, and I get to find out about their kids or about their sick mother or whatnot. I'm here to care. You can take your job, whatever it is. It can be the most boring job. The most boring job I ever had was, <laughs> was in college. I got hired as a temp worker to input insurance forms. Uh, at the hospital just to key them into the computer one after the other. The only interesting thing was at the bottom where it told what they had gone to the emergency room for. We used to collect those, actually. But <laughs> that notion. But you can take something like that. You can take these, these things that are just mundane and give it a twist. You know, give it a little bit of a spin in how you do it. Uh, you know, I remember I worked in an office with 23 ladies uh, in a human resources department. And uh, <laughs> I, I was just being a, a social butterfly. I wasn't doing it really as a form of service or anything, but I found out later on that it was, had turned into quite a service. The first hour and a half or two hours of my day every day, because I was a state worker, mind you, I would just walk around with my cup of coffee and say hi to every single woman working in, in the office. I was the IT guy, so I was supposed to be taking care of all their computers. And I found the best way to find out what was going on with their machines was to kind of keep that going. And also, I, didn't, I often had to get jobs done, and I had to work across social lines. You know, it's like in offices, sometimes there's like these little social cliques. And if you're in with the wrong one at the wrong time, they won't take your paper, or they won't finish your project, or they'll put your thing on the back burner. So I, I decided I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't abide by that because I, I had to talk to all of them. So I would just go around and just meet everybody every morning, two hours. That was like 25% of my day was just being social, just going around chatting with everyone. When it came time to my review with the, with the boss, she told me that one, one of the most valuable things that I brought to the office was my unifying factor that, that I somehow seemed to manage to keep the whole office, you know, with a sense of unity. Now, of course, I was just, <laughs> like I said, I was just having my coffee and enjoying everyone's company. But you see, you can take what is your job. My job was the IT guy. I could have, I could have, I do very well getting fat and sitting in front of a computer and growing my hair out. You can do that. That can be your job. Or you can make change the nature of your job to get out there, to be someone who cares, someone who's trying to, to help or trying to unify a situation. So it's a matter of how you define yourself. Your job description doesn't define you. It doesn't tell you what you are. You know, Sam told me that that was one of the big differences he sees between the East Coast and the West Coast. He says in the East Coast, when you ask somebody what, what they do, it's their job description. Oh, I'm a doctor. Oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a car, I'm a banker, I'm a, you know, whatever. He says on the West Coast, when you ask somebody what, what they do, they're like, oh, I like hang gliding, you know, or I, I'm a runner. You know, they, they talk about activities, the things outside that, that, that they identify with. He said that was the big difference between meeting East Coast and West Coast people, which I thought was kind of cool. 
But see, it's a matter of how you define yourself in this world that's going to manifest what you are in the world. You don't have to take the, the stamped writing on your forms to identify yourself. You're free. You're free. You can be the IT guy who's actually the unifying force in the office, and that's his job more than fixing computers. You can be the barrister whose real job is to sit there and let people know that somebody's hearing them and somebody's watching them and caring about their life and keeping track of who's sick and who's not and who's well. That you can take on that kind of identity and become that kind of servant. But to do that, you have to, you have to be clear in your identity, clear in your notion of self. What is your ideal? And to live truthfully according to it so that you don't get that that weakness inside that causes you to become mundane, that causes you to be unable to inspire because you're no longer being inspired inside. So insincerity will create that complexity and that cloudiness inside. Later, the Pharisees, <laughs> later, the rulers sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Okay. <laughs> so you see how they set them all up. We know, you know, all that flattery, you know, we think you're great. We love you. Now just tell us, what should we do? Because the Jews, Jews don't pay tax, you know, within their system because that's going to a, you, you give only to God, you know, is the kind of idea behind it. And so they were wanting to trip him up and saying, should we pay this tax or not? Because they had to pay Rome, you know, at that time. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. So he knew that they weren't really asking about this. They didn't want an answer to the question. He says, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius, bring me some of the money, and let's have a look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this? Whose inscription is on this coin? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You see, when you, when you, when you cover your eyes like that, with that hypocrisy, trying to... to, to whatever, put yourself in the right place or to catch somebody else in their lies or when you, when you treat your religion as a thing that somehow makes you better or makes you greater. You know, what I'm thinking of is I remember my first couple of years in the monastery, like third, probably sixth or seventh year actually, I was at a retreat at the Lake Tahoe cabin. And... Uh, <laughs> I was leaning on the railing of the, uh, looking out over the lake, and one of the devotees, one of the older devotees, came up and said to me, brought up this, this question about two Sanskrit words and what the difference between them was that he was trying to discern. Now, probably most people here know, and if you don't, I'm about to tell you, don't come to me with questions about your Sanskrit. <laughs> there are many, many better, better resources than myself. And so I told him, I said, oh, I said, you should go talk to Maharaj about that. He can elucidate those differences much better. And he turned to me and he said to me, he said, oh, I know the answer. I just wanted to see if you did. <laughs> and I found it really hard to laugh that off. <laughs> that hurt so, so much inside. I was like, ew, 
Ew. Ah, I don't like that at all. I don't like that at all. And see, sometimes our religion comes that way. You know, there's a, the, the last story here. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw the stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote his, with his finger in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I. Go, leave behind your life of sin. You know, these, these, these men in their religiosity, in, in, in their insincerity and in their hypocrisy had lost all sense of compassion, all sense of love. They'd lost the purpose of their religion the purpose of their rituals, the purpose of their prayers, the purpose of their practices, which is to love, to become co-manifestors of a pure love, a redeeming love, an inspiring love, a deep sense of service for each other and for the world around us. They had forfeited that for being right, for knowing the law. What's interesting, what always bothers me about that story is here's this woman caught in the act of adultery Where's the guy? <laughs> Why didn't they drag him in there? Why did they just drag the woman in there, you know, getting all ready to kill her? Anyway, that's another lecture. But this notion, you know, that, that, that we always have to keep our compassion first, the, the, most important, the most important teaching of all the religions, right? And even the non-religious. I was very excited. I'm reading the symposium by... Uh, uh, Plato, <laughs> that guy. <laughs> and uh, in there, he's praising love. Of course, different aspects of love, which not so many people here might praise. But definitely talking about all the aspects of love. And he says, indeed, love is the most important thing. So even, even Plato, in a non-religious environment, a non-kind of a wisdom-based environment, is agreeing that love is the most important thing. We talk about that all the time. That the number one thing Jesus said is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That's quite a call right there, to love. And he says, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love, as, as you love yourself. You know, Vedanta puts them together. I bring them before you again this morning as the most important teaching that can be given to us, is to love each other. To love each other with all of your heart, to love each other with all of your mind, to love each other with all of your soul and all of your strength. That's quite a call. And when you say all of your mind, that means that everybody, you don't, you don't reserve little places in your mind for not liking that person. You don't get to have little store boxes in there where you keep each other's faults 
in place, you know, so that you remember what wrongs were done to you by this person or that person. You don't get to have scales in there about, oh, I love this person this much because I respect them that much. But they did this last year and, well, we come dragging them in before the Lord. Hey, I caught this person doing this. Can I throw the first rock? <laughs> you know? So that call to love, that has to be sincere and earnest. It's, it's overcoming that leaven of the Pharisees, that in yourself, it has to be pure. What you say, what you do, and what you think have to be in alignment. They have to be arm in arm. Otherwise, you're broken. And God can only use a broken you know, instrument in limited ways. He won't be able to inspire people through you. He won't be able to serve people through you. He won't be able to care for people through you. So this is why it's so fundamentally important. Not so that we get to heaven. Not so that we get our realization. Not so that we become better sadhus or better this, that, and the other. It's so that we can be there attentive and ready to serve when God needs. When God shows and God manifests an opportunity to you. You can know how ready you are by the number of opportunities God gives to you. How many people does he allow you to serve? He who is faithful in little is faithful in much, Jesus says. You know? So begin working on that inner life so that you can see and watch as God opens up to you a world in desperate need of people who care, not people who are telling them what's right or wrong, not people with philosophical answers for the great beyond, people who care, people who listen, people who sit with compassion, people who sit with concern, people who are willing to go out of their way to, to, to drive someone farther than you would normally drive them. <laughs> so let's get some principles for getting ourselves into this alignment. You know, Jesus talks about it. Actually, Tucker also talks about it. So it's a very common image that you can't put the a thread through a needle if there's even one little strand sticking out. And of course, now they got those new needles that you can just thread anyway. But that notion is there. So let's look at some of these principles for, for, for being able to thread our needle properly. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell or his punishment. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of much more value than many sparrows. So he's saying here, be free. <laughs> Don't let your body define you. Don't let these needs of being constrained in a body confine you. Don't identify yourself with that. You know? So understand that you're first and foremost spirit. And that goes into that famous thing that we love to spend time on, Satchitananda. Existence, bliss, intelligence, absolute. That that's your identity. That's who you are. That's what you manifest in this world. You manifest intelligence. You manifest love. You manifest existence, presence there. And presence is the one that people are most confused with. Like, presence, what does that mean? What does that mean? 
You manifest your, your presence becomes service when you're fully present to somebody listening to them. You know, I think, I think in the modern world, one of the biggest things needed is people who listen. Everybody nowadays is wanting to tell and to say and to teach and to, you know, make their point. Nobody's listening. Nobody's listening. You know, I saw again another article this morning about, uh, uh, you know, well, it gets into politics, but this whole notion with the protest, with kneeling at the and the anthem, you know, and and uh, on the one hand, oh, it's unpatriotic, and on the other hand, you know, no, it's because of this, it's because of our protest, and it's like nobody's listening. Everybody's yelling about what their point is and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to say, but they're not listening. They're not hearing what's going on. And so part of your being presence, part, part of your sat, your being, is that gift to be with each other, to sit there and listen to a conversation. There was a wonderful show on NPR a couple of months ago about active listening, about how to actually sit down and listen to somebody. Because she says, most of us, when we're having a conversation, will listen long enough to come up with our response. And as soon as we've come up with our response, we sit there and organize it until the other person stops talking, and then we give our response. And chances are they're listening the same way, just long enough to get their idea together and then share their idea. You know, I, or I think of my panic when I'm ever trying to socialize, because I'm, I'm terrible at it, naturally, to, to keep a conversation going. And I'm sitting there, the person's talking, and I'm barely listening to them. I'm sitting there sifting through an entire lifetime to find a, a proper experience to share that will, you know, add to the conversation. It's not a matter of being present. It's a matter of performing, almost, you know. So that's, that's one challenge for our hypocrisy, is stop the performance. Stop the acting. And start being. Be present. If someone's talking to you, ask. For more information, say, oh, did, I, did you just say, did I understand you right? When you said, there's techniques for it. They're great techniques. Active listening, if you ever want to study, read a pamphlet. That's all you need is to read a pamphlet on active listening. <laughs> to learn, to be there and to care. All right, so have no fear. Don't base your idea of yourself on your limitations, on this set of restrictions called the body and mind. Keep understanding that you are soul, that you are infinite, that you've been without birth and you will never die. And take comfort in that and live accordingly. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? All right, that's, that, which is weird, because we love to use our, our uh, avatars as arbitrators and judges over each other. Uh, Takur says, <laughs> Takur said, Jesus said, you know, <laughs> so this guy's saying, tell my brother he has to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not the judge or the arbitrator here. He said to him, but I'll tell you this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You know, be on guard for wanting what your brother has. Be very careful about that, he says. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all of these crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. 
And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax now, eat a little, drink a little, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So, don't identify yourself by what you make, or what you own, or where you live, or the car you drive. I know none of us do that. (laughs) We just got a great car in the monastery, by the way. (laughs) But this idea of transcending this notion of who you are, to stop it with these things, understand that those things are unimportant, that they do not help, that if you've got too much to store, serve give it if there's money left at the end of the at the end of the month give it to somebody look for somebody you know i always make that simple thing go for a walk and put ten dollars in your pocket and don't come home from the walk until you've given the ten dollars away and pray mom going out here with ten dollars to give to somebody please help me find the person who could use it you know Or maybe it's a hundred. I don't know. Whatever you're going to do. But go looking for opportunities to work out of your surplus. Identify yourself with the compassion that's your nature. Identify yourself with love that is your nature. Identify yourself with intelligence that is your nature. And be that. Be that in the world. In Corinthians, a letter to to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul, he says, Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Love, that's how you know. Am I being loving? (laughs) Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. So, you know, Sanskrit's great, Learning all of your scriptures and memorizing all that is great until it begins to puff you up. Then you have begun to take the learning as the important thing and not the message. When you, when you, when you take the learning and the studies and the practices and the rituals and the things that you do as being the important thing and you begin to, to put those little notches in your spiritual belt, I'm a good person because I do my prayers, because I meditate two hours a day, because I've memorized these scriptures, because I've studied my Sanskrit, then you've forgotten the message. And you've gotten stuck on the learning. So love builds up. If you're studying properly, the things that you're learning are causing you to build up the world around you, not puff up. You know, you want to know what puffing up is, meet with, a, meet with an entrepreneur who's trying to get some money from you for their project you know, that's puffing up. Little tiny things done turn into mountains of assurance. You know, little ideas turn into promises of huge riches. We make everything little look really big. How is it in our lives, in our spiritual lives? Are we making very little things look very big? <laughs> Are we talking up all the things that we're doing, but in effect, we're not hardly doing anything? You know, so pay attention. Are you puffing up or are you building up? You know, puffing up is is something you do yourself. You know, building up is something you do for others. 
So if you're loving, which, which Vivekananda says is the one measure of a person's spirituality, he says he gives two, actually. We've talked about those before also. He says, number one, are you unselfish? Are you unselfish? To the degree that you're unselfish, to that degree you're spiritual. And the second was like it. He says, are you loving? Are you loving? To the degree that you're loving, to that degree you're spiritual. So if you want to put a notch in your belt, use those two principles there. Because if that love is existing in you, you will be building up. You'll be helping, building a new vision. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, nor about your body, what you're going to put on it. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do this such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest of it? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass and the flowers which are alive in the field today and tomorrow are thrown, are thrown away in decay, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, <coughs> where no thief approaches. Where no, math, where no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So again, he's talking again about not worrying. Don't be anxious about things. Don't create things to worry about. You know, my mother and I, a big part of our relationship is <laughs> her constantly worrying about me. You know, it's like we would go on these camping trips and she would just be a string of possible disasters that could happen and it was always she was always mad at my dad because my dad was letting me walk too close to the edge or my dad was letting me run by the cactuses or my dad was letting me climb up on that rock over there and my mother was always in the background he's gonna fall and break his neck <laughs> you know, get him back from the edge he's gonna go over that cliff if you're going to create a world in which every possible bad thing is the likely thing you're going to be very stressed out and unable to do anything for anyone if you're going to make up things to worry about in this world, think about the best things that can happen. Instead of focusing on me falling off of the cliff, focus on the fact that I'm probably not going to and be happy about that instead of being worried about the other. You know, Think about what's real in your life and what's not real in your life before you begin being anxious about it. You always have choices. That's the most wonderful thing about this life. We, we work ourselves into these make-believe situations where we believe that we're stuck, that we can't change. You know, I like to talk about that period of my life because that was a very exciting time for me. 
because I had done all the established things. I had my job. I had my degree. I had my blah, 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 blah. And I sat there in that bed that night, like I told you many times, and just had that thought, I'm not happy. So I just sold it all and began again. I didn't join the monastery at that time. I didn't know anything of monasteries at that time. But at that time, I went looking to find happiness. And it occurred to me how easily done that is. You're never stuck. It's all make-believe. I don't care what string of reasons you have for the reasons you can't change. They're not true. You can change today. If you're not happy with the way your life is, change it. <clears throat> if you don't like your job the way it is, change it. If you don't like the way the family is, change it. It can all change. As soon as you stop change, start treating people differently, they will treat you differently. As soon as you start respecting people around you, they will start respecting you. As soon as you start loving people around you, they will start loving you. As soon as you start relaxing and stop, stopping all of the anxiety about the world, all of your little pet diversions won't be quite as important to you, won't be quite as overwhelming to you. you know? Trust these things. Trust in the Lord. He's present and available. Define yourself by what you are. Manifest that world. In Christ the Messenger, Swami Vivekananda says this, So we find this Jesus of Nazareth in the first place, the true son of the Orient, intensely practical. He has no faith in this evanescent world and all of its belongings. I like that. He says in the one sentence there, he is intensely practical. What does intensely practical mean to Swami Vivekananda? Because us, we normally think intensely practical means that he's very, very effective and efficient in what he's doing in front of him. No, he says his, he says his very next thing is says he's intensely practical. He has no faith in this evanescent world and all of its belongings. No need of text torturing, as is the fashion of the West in the modern times. No need to stretch the meanings of text well beyond what they can possibly stretch anymore. <laughs> he says... No more making religion to pander the sense of vanity. Mark you, let us all be honest. If we cannot follow the ideal, let us confess our weakness, but not degrade it. Let not any try to pull it down. So it's that call to be honest. You know, look at Jesus. Yes, intensely practical. He put no faith in this world as a, as a thing that's going to give him anything. This was a place for manifestation. This is a place for giving. This is a place for caring. It's not a place for taking. He understood that. Let us be honest. Let us take a clear look at where we're at. You know, this lecture is going to do that for me more than anything. I got a lot of stuff to think about after this lecture. But let us not degrade our ideal. Our ideal is beautiful. And it's worth giving up everything else we've got for. Whether we've done it yet or not, know that the ideal is worthy of it. Be honest that you're not. Don't get down about it. Set your eyes on the beloved and keep going. Keep trying. He says, the best commentary on the life of a great teacher is his own life. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That is what Christ says as the only way to salvation. He lays down no other way. Let us confess in sackcloth and ashes that we cannot do that. We still have fondness for me and mine. We want property. We want money. We want wealth. Woe unto us. 
Let us confess and not put to shame that great teacher of humanity. He had no family ties. But do you think that that man had any physical ideas in him? Do you think that this mass of light, this God, this not-man, came down to earth to be the brother of animals? And yet people make him preach all sorts of things. He had no sex ideas. He was a soul, nothing but a soul, just working a body for the good of humanity. And that was all of his relationship to the body. In the soul there is no sex. The disembodied soul has no relationship to the animal, no relationship to the body. The ideal may be far away and beyond us, but never mind. Keep to the ideal. Let us confess that it is our ideal, but we have not yet approached it. He had no other occupation in life, no other thought except that one, that he was a spirit. He was disembodied, unfettered, unbound. And not only so, but he, with his marvelous vision, had found that every man and that every woman whether Jew or Gentile, whether rich or poor, whether saint or sinner, was the embodiment of that same undying spirit as himself. Therefore, the one work his whole life showed was to call upon them to realize their own spiritual nature. Give up, he says, these superstitious dreams, that you are low, that you are poor. Think not that you are trampled upon and tyrannized over as if you were slaves. For within you is something that can never be tyrannized over. In you is something that can never be trampled upon. Something that can never be troubled. Something that can never be killed. You are all sons of God. Immortal spirits. Know, he declared. Know that the kingdom of heaven is within you. I and my father are one. Dare to stand up and say... Not only that, I am the Son of God, but I shall also find it in my heart of hearts that I and my Father are one. That was what Jesus of Nazareth said. He never talks of this world and of this life. He has nothing to do with it, except that he wants to get hold of the world as it is, give it a push and drive it forward and onward until the whole world has reached the effulgent light of God, until everyone has realized his spiritual nature. Until death, until death is vanished, and misery has been banished. So that's Vivekananda, that's Vivekananda <laughs> on the Christ, on you. That seed that is within you. You know, yeah. to 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 live in any other way is to be a hypocrite. To live in any other way is to be untrue to yourself. Being selfish is not an advantage. It's a hypocrisy because you are love in your nature. Doing stupid and frivolous things isn't an advantage. You are intelligent in your nature, created to express intelligence, the intelligence of God. Being constantly distracted and multitasking at 19 different things at a time is not an advantage to you. It's a hypocrisy. You were created to be present, fully present, unified in your mind and your body, a servant of all, always attentive to the needs of what God brings to you, to those that God brings to you. 
my favorite thing that Swami Prabhupada said about the mission of the Vedanta centers. Because as a Christian, I was having a hard time conceiving of a religion that didn't proselytize. <laughs> I was like, what's the point? <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, well, the mission of this place, he said, the mission of this place is to help those who come here for help in any way that they think we can help them. That's the mission of the Vedanta Center. That's the mission of you who come here. We count on you to live like that, to have that attitude and that spirit toward each other and toward the people that you meet. Because if we can't learn to live like that, we have nothing to say. We have nothing to show. We have nothing to give. Let us admit that perhaps we're not as high on the scheme as we want to be, but let it not bother us. Just roll up your sleeves today and do better. Roll up your sleeves tonight in your practice and be more sincere. Spend time in your scriptures tonight and be a little bit more reflective. But above all, remember what Hafiz invites you to do. Dance with the beloved. Play with God. Just spending conscious time with the Lord will make you free, will inspire you to be pure, will make you able to be serve, to serve and to give and to care. It will take out that broken hypocrisy inside and put a strong central beam of love back in its place so that you can be what you want it to be, so that you can be the person you always thought of yourself being, the person you want to be remembered for being when you pass away, when this body goes. Be that person now. Make that decision now. And let's do it together. We're a Sangha, after all, a family. It's all right to be weak with each other. It's all right to have faults. But it's even better to know that we forgive each other, that we inspire each other, and that we want the best for each other. To know God and to be God. Co-creators. Lovers of the highest order. Let's take a few moments to think about these things. Hafiz wrote a poem called Something I Have Learned. Water gets poured through a cloth to collect impurities. The beloved's name is a mystical weave and pattern, a hidden sieve of effulgence that we need to pass through thousands of times. From my constant remembrance of the friend, all I now say is safe to drink, something that I have learned from the kind, radiant one who drew me from the unfathomable sky's well makes me playful all day long.